0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology and
1: operations.'re moving too fast.
0: Thank you to our newest sponsor, Kegshoe Keg Tracking. Learn more about what they do at www.kegshue.ca.
2: This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at Hopsteiner.com.
0: Additional support provided by...
2: Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers, and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to BrewNinja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21.
1: I knew that it was not gonna to be too far of a stretch for us to develop yeast that were capable of making those flavor molecules during fermentation. The little synthase that was identified in mint Uh, was the best enzyme when we ported it over to yeast.
0: While it feels like just yesterday to me, what you're about to hear originally aired almost four years ago in 2018. Back then, haters dismissed my posts about this revolutionary research with comments such as, just because one can does not mean one should, and hops cannot simply be replaced by GMO yeast. But they didn't get the point. This isn't a story about replacing hops. It's a story about how some of the best technology humanity has ever accessed touches beer. A technology that would become important for producing vaccines to fight a global pandemic. This remains one of my all-time favorite episodes. Even if you've already heard it, I hope you'll listen again, perhaps with a more open mind. Gene technology isn't something to be scared of. It's an important tool that we should all strive to better understand. This is a story of our future a future of endless possibilities. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. Your recent publication in the journal Nature Communications made quite the splash in the brewing industry. The story was picked up by the New York Times, NPR, and countless news outlets with headlines like, new beer yeast could make hops irrelevant, GMO yeast mimics flavors of hops, and brewing craft beer with crisper, not hops. I've got to say, never have so many people afforded me so many articles about a single publication. Charles, your inbox must be bursting at the seams.
1: We got, we got more interest in the article than we expected, that's for sure. We're humbled by it, and we're also really grateful for the exposure. Some of the discourse was really useful and captured our sentiments, and others maybe didn't. But yeah, we're, we're really excited that, that um, people took an interest in it.
0: Fair enough. Let's start off by explaining where hop flavor and aroma come from. Talk a little bit about essential oil and terpenes.
1: Yeah. Monoterpenes are, and, and sescoterpenes are the class of molecules that are made uh, primarily by plants uh, and they impart uh, flavor and aroma. And in the case of hops and beer, they impart intense, like hoppy uh, flavor and aroma to beer if they're added late in the brewing process.
0: And you already had some history working with terpenes, but not in brewing, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So we were interested in terpene biosynthesis from a biofuels perspective. So before I um, started this project, I was working on uh, developing microbes that were capable of biosynthesizing other terpene molecules that would potentially serve as biofuel molecules or biofuel precursors. And it was only by chance that I, came, that I you know, came across this literature on what the primary flavor determinants of hops were. Uh, and so when I found out that linole and geraniol were um, some, some of the primary determinants of cascade, um, I, I knew that it was not going to be too far of a stretch for us to develop yeast that were capable of making those flavor molecules during fermentation.
0: When did that first occur to you that it might be possible to engineer yeast to produce those terpenes that hopheads love?
1: Yeah, no, I remember, I mean, I was reading, uh, one of my buddies that I homebrew with uh, dropped off a book with me or left a book with me uh, by a guy named Fix called Principles of Brewing Science. And I was re- reading that book, uh, and, I, and that's where I first saw linole, geraniol, and I knew those molecules looked real, real familiar. So I sort of started thinking, well, maybe I should just test to see whether I can put these enzymes in in a common lab yeast, uh, which is pretty, it's actually somewhat far removed from from brewer's yeast. They're uh, just like the workhorse of of academia and like a lot of medical uh, biosciences. Uh, So anyway, I I put a few enzymes into uh, the lab yeast and found a couple of enzymes that uh, worked really well when they were
3: expressed in in uh, lab yeast, and so that that was actually a summer research project
1: by an undergraduate uh, at UC Berkeley that I was mentoring and so while I was working on biofuels research, uh, she came to the lab and and sort of worked on that as a side project and it, it worked better than we expected and we got some really encouraging results, and that's really when we decided to push, push forward with actually trying to engineer industrial breweries' yeast.
0: Hop chemistry is complicated. There's still a lot we don't know, but we do know many of the compounds that are responsible for hop flavor and aroma. You focused your work on two specific monoterpenes for good reasons. Tell us more about linalool and geraniol and why you started with those.
1: So I'm reading this... Uh This book about brewing science, uh, and it it says linole and granule are primary determinants. Um, Well, there is a really long history of research that established those two as primary flavor determinants. So, um, what I next did was I really dove into the literature, and there are dozens upon dozens of research articles that uh, attempt to establish a relationship
3: between. Certain molecules and flavor properties, um, and um, there are some review articles that summarize th- this very well. But if you go back to the primary literature,
1: um, every different study seems to point to a different collection of flavor molecules. But uh, with you know these dozens upon dozens of studies, certain ones. Begin to emerge as repeatedly important, and limonol wool um, is a is, is it seems to be important for driving hop flavor in many different uh, cultivars. Um, and then there's some there's some mixed reviews of how important geraniol is, but certainly it looks like for Cascade hops, geraniol is is really important for driving its flavor. Um, and then. I think something you alluded to is that there are many additional terpenes. Um, some of them have, most of which come up in some studies, but not all studies. So I would say while limonene and geraniol are perhaps the most firmly established as as strong drivers of hop flavors, at least for Cascade hops, um, these other sort of more peripheral uh, molecules are. Almost certainly important. Many of them are almost certainly important, but but just there, there's not quite as much, um, uh, quite as strong data supporting their involvement um, in dry hopping.
0: Makes sense. It, it sounds like the genes responsible for producing linalool and geraniol in hops haven't been identified yet. Did I get that right?
1: More or less. It's um, there has been some interesting research uh, on. Basically, where they've done some genome sequencing of, of hop, uh, and there are a number of terpene synthases that have been found, um, and and but none of them have been established as committed linalool or geraniol synthases. One thing I'm sure you're familiar with is that um, while linalool and geraniol are you know these they are drivers of hop flavor, there are other terpene monoterpene molecules that are in much higher abundance in hops. So um, for example, myrcene sometimes can account for uh, maybe Brian I'll check my numbers on this, but it can be like 50% of, of hop oil, at least 30%. Um, whereas geraniol may be less than a percent total. Uh, it's just that because they're more hydrophobic, they end up making it into beer at slightly higher abundances. And again, Brian, if you take issue with anything I'm saying, feel free to jump in. Are no, you're pretty uh, good there.
0: That's Brian Donaldson speaking. He's the brewing innovation manager at Lagunitas Brewing Company. Brian is one of the authors of the article we're discussing, and I should also mention that he's president of Master Brewers District
4: Northern California. I was just thinking about mircene. And one, one thing to notice is you can't necessarily look at hops themselves you have to look at what survives into the beer Um, so what what actually makes it from the plant material into the finished product while myrcene might be and 50% is not a bad number to put out there 50% of what you get out of your raw hops what actually makes it into the beer is oftentimes going to be those um, those terpenes that he's talking about the geraniol and the linalool because they do have I believe they're terpene alcohol so they're a little more soluble into the
0: so uh, charles without um, without having sort of the the genes responsible for producing those molecules in hops without them being fully identified, that sounds like a pretty big hurdle. How did you approach dealing with that in your project?
1: Yeah <laughs> good question. so what we did was we basically looked around in the literature and um, uh, of course, hops are not is not the only plant that makes little uh, ones they're these are um, these are somewhat ubiquitous in the plant uh, kingdom, and so we basically went and scraped through a bunch of literature and found papers where people had reported and other um, enzymes from other plants that make linole and geraniol, and the one we we ended up finding that the linol synthase that was identified in mint. Uh, was the best enzyme when we ported it over to yeast, and uh, maybe in retrospect this is not a, t- a total shock. Whereas you know, what we were talking about before with hops being 50% myrcene and, and less than a percent of linole. on the other hand, if you take the um, if you take the extract um, or the essential oil rather of of mint plant, it's like. Ninety percent uh, linoleol and linoleol acetate, which is a derivative of linoleol. So um, it's that those plant cells are really cranking out linoleol. So um, part of what's going on, I suspect, is that the linoleol synthase from mint plant just is a uh, more resilient and robust and more active enzyme. Uh, so yeah, just to sort of go back to your original question. We ended up looking at uh, candidate linalool synthesis from six different plants, and the one from spearmint ended up working the best. We repeated something similar for geraniol uh, synthase as well, and the one we ended up identifying as a solid candidate was uh, the, the geraniol synthase from basil. actually.
0: Very cool. You knew from analyzing hoppy commercial beers that the goal was roughly 0.2 milligrams per liter of linalool and geraniol, but how in the world were you going to hit that target?
1: Oh, man. That's so (laughs) glad you asked that question. Not not very many people ask that question. Um, And that was probably the most, the biggest challenge that we had to face in this whole thing. Um, Because when you take. Enzymes from uh, from plants like mint and basil, uh, and you stick them into yeast. You don't know uh, exactly how much and geraniol they're going to end up producing. So, you know, it could be 0.02 migs per liter. It could be you know two migs per liter. So, we ended up um, taking those two terpene synthase genes and Combining them with a couple other uh, yeast genes that are involved in the terpene biosynthetic pathway, and we um, so we took those four genes and we added different combinations of promoters. So let me just back up for a second. Promoters are just uh, probably many of your uh, many of the people in your audience know this, but uh, promoters are just the genetic elements that control the timing and amount of of the gene being expressed into a protein so by choosing different combinations of promoters to drive those four genes uh, that results in different brewer's yeast strains with different concentrations of each of those enzymes and different timing under which those enzymes are expressed during the brewing process So. We started by testing 18 strains, each with a different combination of promoters driving those four genes, and then testing them in very, very small fermentations that we tried to set up such that they would mimic the industrial brewing process. Um, so we, just to give you a, a sort of, you know, entertaining to think about from a brewing perspective, because we were basically taking 30- uh, milliliter cultures and equipping them with little airlocks and uh, allowing those to ferment, you know, 10% malt extract and letting them ferment for five to seven days and then measuring the final concentration of linole and geraniol in those resulting cultures. And so, like I said, we first tested 18 different strains that we... And the... The way that we chose which promoters we would use to drive those the expression of those four genes was somewhat random. We wanted to make sure we got a um, a good spread from sort of low expression to high expression. Um, and just a quick side note: all those promoters are genetic. There, so these genetic elements are from uh, other yeast genes. That is, they are the they are the genetic elements that drive expression of other yeast genes so we're basically just taking them and repurposing them for expression um, of these terpene synth- synthase genes etc okay so the f- so we tested those 18 strains and they f- and very encouragingly they expressed um sorry they ended up producing um, a range of different concentrations of both linalool and geraniol and that range covered the you know 0.2 MG per liter target concentrations that we were hoping for. Um, so that's that's sort of how we went about doing it. We ultimately we tested more than 18 strains, but I think we might be getting into that in a second.
0: That's great. All right, so my wife keeps telling me that most people still don't know about CRISPR, and she's usually right, so we should probably talk about CRISPR. How are we going to do this? Should we just have everyone go listen to Radiolab or something? Or, Brian, are you still there? Do you want to explain CRISPR? How about this?
4: How about, I think about this? Charles takes that one.
0: How about this? We don't need Radiolab. Let's take turns. I'll say a word, then you say a word,
3: and, and, and I'll start, okay? Revolutionary technology groundbreaking genetic engineering i already ran out of words i was gonna I, wanted to, <laughs> I, wanted, I was gonna i wanted to end with
0: scissors but anyway all right so um yeah so i think uh, i think charles it's on you you're gonna have to give us the elevator pitch on CRISPR.
1: yeah no problem um so the thing that's really cool about crispr cas9 is that
3: for for brewing yeast especially uh is that this, okay, so let me just take a step back and try and start at the beginning. So
1: CRISPR-Cas9 is basically like a genetic defense mechanism that bacteria, certain bacteria possess. Um, and it was discovered uh, by a whole host of different people, but uh, some of the initial biochemistry was done uh, in Jennifer Doudna's lab here at UC Berkeley, uh, just around the corner from where we're at now. Um, and basically... The implications of, of this discovery have been really interesting basically it allows you or the, a scientist to make targeted double strand breaks in dna and what that basically means is let's say there's some part of the genome where you want to cut uh, you can do that practically anywhere in the genome and then when you make that cut the, the advantage of that is that you can oftentimes, well, typically you'll supply um, an exogenous piece of DNA, and if that DNA uh, contains what's called homology or uh, DNA sequences that are similar to the cut ends, then new DNA that new DNA can be incorporated into the genome of the organism. And so, so does that—am I missing anything? Does that— at least starting to make sense that, a little bit. That
0: sounds pretty good to me. It wasn't quite as good as Radio Lab, but it was pretty good.
3: Okay, good. All right.
1: <laughs> All right so, so the reason this is so interesting for brewers' yeast is because, um, well, as as everyone knows, brewers' yeast are tetraploid, and so the old school methods of introducing DNA into yeast genome um, just relied on basically trying to. <laughs> The chance that a piece of DNA w- without Cas9, the chance that a piece of DNA would incorporate into a given region of the genome is like one in a billion. <laughs> ex- I, I might I might be off by an order of magnitude there, <laughs> uh, but but something on that order. Right. And so it's 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 tricky to incorporate a piece of DNA into a genome. And what's really hard is to use that method to incorporate four pieces of dna into four different uh different loci right so if you're a tetraploid maybe you if you even if you get one in uh that ends up being genetically unstable and it's not going to work for generating a um, a new industrial brewing yeast that has uh that that will stably contain the dna of interest When you introduce uh, a targeted, when you introduce Cas9, you can make these targeted double strand breaks. And that massively increases the rate at which a piece of DNA will incorporate into that particular genomic region. So it basically makes the numbers game possible that you can actually replace, you can incorporate a piece of DNA at all four copies of the genome, all four loci of the genome. And that allows you to make genetically stable industrial brewer's yeast strains.
4: Coming up. And he let me know there was this project going on at Berkeley having to do with genetically engineered yeast to make hop flavors and was wondering if we were interested in running some sensory for it.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
2: Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. Support from this episode comes from BSG and The Malt House by RAR. The Malt House is your online source for cool and exclusive RAR Melting Company gear that you can't get anywhere else t-shirts, hoodies, hats, socks, glassware, and even gear for your pets. Rep the malt you brew with and look sharp doing it. Take the tradition home at themalthouse.com. Are you looking to improve yield quality and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha
0: Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience offering centrifuges, de systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. With the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Ontario is doing a webinar February 24th on the topic of safety hazards in the brewery. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall February 24th. District Pittsburgh meets February 25th at Mindful Brewing Company. District Great Plains meets February 26th at Crane Brewing in Raytown, Missouri. District Philly meets at the Iron Hill Tap House in Exton march 25th the 2022 brewing summit that's the combined meeting with master brewers and asbc is august 14th to the 16th in rhode island check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you back to the show why don't you kind of lay out the remaining steps in your journey leading up to um sort of the part where we can properly introduce brian and, and get into some of the tasting stuff
1: yeah right on um so after we generated 48 strains uh that had again that had uh, these four different genes, all driven from four different yeast promoters. Um, we 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 identified. We basically took about a dozen of them that produced in the range of that zero point two mg per liter sweet spot of both little and geraniol, and we started um, doing scaled up fermentations with those. And we, I think, what we did at first is we just performed one liter fermentations with that, you know that group of a dozen different strains. We measured how much little adrenaline they were producing in the scaled up fermentations. Then eventually, you know, we smelled the cultures and saw sort of (laughs) how they, and then obviously that's not in the paper, but (laughs) fun fun facts anyway. So uh, we took three of our favorite strains over to uh, UC Davis. We were able to um, collaborate with Dr. Charles Bamforth at UC Davis uh, and his head brewer Joe Williams, who's a PhD student in his lab. Um, and uh, Dr. Bamforth is actually how we ended up connecting with Brian. Um, but so what we did in, in in Charlie's lab was we took those three strains as well as the control strain, and we made forty liter batches of beer in his industrial pilot brewing facility um joe like, like i said joe williams did that work um and so it was totally you know professional grade uh beer um so we were obviously thrilled to to be able to do that and then uh, charlie suggested that we take these samples over to ryan at lagunitas where he would be able to do a sensory and obviously we're going to get into that um, so that's pretty much how that ended up happening
0: Very cool. So, uh, Brian, uh, how about, hopefully you're still here, how about telling folks uh, who you are and how you first heard about all this?
4: Absolutely. Um, So, I was contacted out of the blue one day by Charlie Bamforth, who I got my master's degree with at Davis back in 2011, and I had done my research there on the sensory sensory of hop aromas, specifically generating new descriptors and had somehow parlayed that into a job at Lagunitas uh, running our sensory program. And then uh, as of now, I'm doing R&D brewing, but still heavily involved in sensory. And he let me know there was this project going on at Berkeley having to do with Genetically engineered yeast to make hop flavors, and was wondering if we were interested in running some sensory for it.
0: Were you skeptical at all? I, f- I feel like this is the kind of thing where I'd be pretty skeptical at first, but I don't know. Maybe brewing innovation managers don't get skeptical. I don't know. <laughs> we could never afford one of those at any of the brews I worked at.
4: Um, I am skeptical, but I, my background is in biochemistry, so I understood a bit of, of what this technology was and where it was coming from. And as a as a quick aside, I, I, but let charles know this but back when i was first going to grad school my sister i uh, was talking to her and she she's a neuroscientist she goes brian we should start a brewery you'll make the beer and then i'll make the yeast and we'll make them make all different flavors <laughs> and so i get this email from charlie and charles about that exact pro- process in prospect and i go why well, I, I have to do this work now because it's 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 destiny um So we, we got on the phone. I think the first thing we did is I had a call with Charles and his team and and they just let me know what, what exactly it was they had done and what they were looking for. Uh, I ran it through the flagpole here at Lagunitas and said, Hey, I'd like to do some sensory for this, these folks from outside, got all the approvals on both sides. Um, you know, just the word of mouth at Lagunitas, the IRB through Berkeley, and we did some sensory work for them. So how did, you, how did you approach
0: that? like what, uh, How did you decide to set up the sensory work? And, and also, why didn't you convince Charles to publish in the TQ, huh?
4: <laughs> that, was next, that was our next target, was the TQ. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, he was already on top. No, as far as running the sensory, really, there was a couple ways we could go about it. And that, that kind of is always the situation with sensory work. Um, And for what they were looking for, we decided to just do difference testing. So we decided to see if these three strains of yeast they made tasted, the beer made with them tasted appreciably different from a beer made with the control strain, which was just the the parent strain that they used and fermented the same word out that Joe made, as well as the three strains. And so knowing we wanted to do a difference, you know, difference testing, There's a few, again, a few ways you can go about that. Most people would just do a triangle test. But at this point, you're trying to triangle test between a control and three different beers. You got to do three different triangle tests. It's just a big mess. So we did a technique uh, that I learned, and you know, I'd heard about in school, but really had only started practicing about a year before called difference from control. What a difference from control test is you take all four beers, you have your control. You give the panelists that control bar and you tell them, here's your control. And then you randomly label four the four samples again. So your three variables and your one control. So you have you're giving them four bl- blindly labeled samples, and you're t- you're saying, How different are each of those four from the control? The reason you leave a control in there blindly is so that, that you can gauge what sort of cognitive bias there is when you tell people how different is this beer? They're going to look for a difference even if there isn't one there. So that's what we did that way. And then you run the statistics, which honestly, I just let my computer do. And it'll it'll tell you if it's um, significantly different from the control. And um, we found that two of the three samples they brought that first time were significantly different. We asked overall difference and difference in hoppiness. Um, And... They, they were different. There's definitely different flavor characteristics coming out of those beers that they brought.
0: Okay. Anything else you'd like to tell us about the sensory panel or the hop flavor and aroma from those beers?
4: Absolutely. So the panel was made up of just Lagunitas employees. Anybody who wasn't driving that day, uh, you know, forklift or a delivery truck is able to come to taste panel. So we got pretty good numbers and we had a wide range of Of departments and styles represented. So you know you had quality, you had brewing, you also had marketing, and you had the tap room. Um, You had office folks, accountants um, at the taste panel. I can only really give my my personal notes on the beers. Uh, I believe my quote that's been circling around is is definite notes of fruit loops and orange blossoms, and uh, I stick by that. Definitely got that. The one thing, the one piece of feedback I really had for Charles is. There's good, there's good fruity type aromas and flavors in there, but there was some something fundamentally missing from the hop flavor, um, and that makes sense given that there's hundreds to thousands of aroma compounds present in these hops and in the finished beer. That trying to replicate the full scale with two two molecules is not going to work. Um, but it seemed to me that there was just there wasn't any of the vegetal character that you get from hops. Right, hops are mostly vegetal matter with some flavor compounds. Uh, So that's going to affect things in a way. But overall, it was really interesting, the flavors that we were getting out of it and the fact that they, they were noticeable and they were distinct.
0: That's awesome. Charles, one of your claims is that yeast biosynthesized monoterpenes are more consistent versus conventional means. I'd like to hear both you and Brian talk about that.
1: So my thinking on that is just the inside of a fermenter is a whole lot more controlled than a hop field uh, that is, you know, going to experience constant difference in
3: um, just a bunch of different environmental factors. Could be uh, the sun, could be the soil. Um, so what we
1: ended up looking at is we we tried hopping a bunch of different beer with. Various preparations of Cascade hops, and we saw a pretty impressive range of concentrations of both linalool and geraniol. Um, but uh, what we found is that a skilled brewer like Joe uh, could make the same beer with the same concentration of linalool and geraniol on different days with different, you know, brewing processes. Uh, so we we think that there's no doubt this will be more consistent than going the agricultural route.
0: And those preparations were from different farms, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, we took um, preps from from I think a couple farms in Washington, a couple ones in Oregon, and one in Idaho.
0: And I'm sure Brian could uh, tell you all. He's probably told you all about hop selection and what all that's like. So I'm sure it makes total sense. Um, So, Brian, what are your thoughts
3: there on sort of that consistency issue? Well, brewers don't have the luxury of uh,
4: using terroir and vintage with their beers, uh, unlike some of the other local alcoholic beverage industries around here in (laughs) the county uh, to remain nameless. And so this this struggle can be from year to year getting consistent flavors out of
3: changing crop years of hops and, and malt, but specifically we're talking about hops. And so, I would have to agree from my
4: scientist side that a fermenter, once it goes in there, you know, you're controlling, you're controlling the temperature, you're controlling the pressure, you're controlling all of that. So theoretically, if you're controlling that well, your yeast should behave pretty similarly every time, and you should get more consistent results. Um, I will say some of the feedback I've gotten is that doing that takes away from the brewer's art. I've heard from some some brewers who say that, that this. This is taking away from what it is that brewers do and what makes brewers so special, and and I have to disagree because there, there's still so many subtle influences that the brewer has on the final product that, that can't be undone just from one one ingredient. So um, to, to quote to quote Jeremy Marshall, my my brewmaster is it's not it's not replacing anything, it's adding an- another color to the palette. So what? What we see happening is not necessarily that we're trying to take away from hops. I don't, I don't think hops are disappearing anytime soon. At least that's what we told our hop farmers when this paper came out. But is there something we can add with what Charles is doing that makes something really interesting? And um, that's what excites me as, as a scientist and as a brewer. Well
0: said. You know, Brian, even though it's not well understood, um, some brewers feel that biotransformation of hop compounds during fermentation is important to their process. Those brewers report preferred sensory results when dry hopping prior to the end of fermentation. But then historically, that's created some other logistical headaches like trying to harvest dry hopped yeast slurry. Brian, from your perspective, how attractive is the idea of getting these terpenes into the fermenting beer without having to separate out spent hop material from beer or yeast?
4: It's definitely definitely intriguing. Um, I would definitely say at Lagunitas, we ascribe to biotransformation being very important for the flavor of our beer. Uh, we haven't necessarily done any specific controlled experiments, but through years of tasting, when we, when we don't hit our timing for dry hop, we notice a difference. Um, I think there's, there's just in the historical and traditional sense, there's ways around that. You don't necessarily have to harvest dry hop yeast. Um, you could do a harvest right before you dry hop or, or whatnot. But if there's a way that you can liberate some more of these flavor compounds using less yeast or just having the yeast make some of them, that's really exciting. There's Charles and I both got to attend the Hop Conference last year in Oregon last summer. And I think we both came away with, with a lot of ideas of how technology like that he's working on could be used beyond just generating a single flavor compound, but enhancing that biotransformation possibilities or bringing in new flavor compounds that might. Might not be liberated from the hops very efficiently at this point, given what we have. Um, so, to answer your first question, is it's it's exciting to maybe not have to deal with with mixed hop yeast slurry, but uh, just everything else that it that it could provide is interesting.
1: Right. Yeah, and I just I just to sort of reiterate um, Brian's points, I just want to say like, the way we think about this of uh, having discuss this with with brewers and and folks in the industry is like this is similar to what jeremy was saying another color on the palette it's like we think this is just another tool in the toolkit Um, and 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 ultimately the way we're thinking about this is just how can we do more with less Um, so that's sort of how yeah that's that's our approach (laughs)
0: Your article made the important point that full flavor imparted by traditional hopping is likely to re- rely on a more diverse bouquet of molecules. I can only imagine you've been working on engineering yeast to produce various packages of hop aroma compounds since you submitted this uh, article last August.
1: Yeah, that's what that we sure are. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And I suppose it makes the most economic sense for you to target aromatics from some of the highly demanded proprietary cultivars, such as Mosaic and Citra and Galaxy, and so on.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, like, I think this sort of come up both from my end and from Brian's end is that we're interested in. In developing this technology as a tool for making better beer, and
1: so you know, this initial project was real. W- w- serves as a proof of concept, showing that this technology can be you know reduced to practice. Um, but I think that what's more important is it just shows how I think it's just exciting because it shows that we're really just scratching on, scratching the surface of of what yeast is capable of doing. Um so, you know, looking towards the future, we're, we're really excited about uh new flavors that are reminiscent of hops um uh that'll just make better beer than than what than what's uh previously been available. It's just getting back to the the point of just this is another we envision this just being another tool in the toolkit to make better beer
3: hey, to to jump in real quick, I think.
4: There's, there's almost an infinite number of different combinations that, that Charles's team could work on. Um, if you look at it from a brewing side, from a hop-growing hop, hop growing side, there's not only differences between cultivars, of which there's probably a few hundred these days, but there's differences based on, on where they're grown, as he showed. There's differences based on when they're harvested. Now, breweries will, will pick their specific hops based on not only cultivars, are in location but when they're harvested some like to harvest them earlier when they have a certain characteristic versus some that like to harvest them later that same varietal can go through you know three or four different distinct phases through its ripening cycle and get different characteristics so there's a lot of possibilities to really pinpoint exactly what you want
0: I'm going to read a quote from your article. While historic consumer trepidation towards genetically engineered foods is of concern for widespread adoption, the general increase in consumer acceptance of such foods when tied to increased sustainability is encouraging. Charles, do you think the consumer really cares if the yeast that made their beer taste hoppy was produced with magical
3: genetic scissors?
1: I think in some cases people care. And I think it's interesting. I think in some cases people are going to look negatively on on using magical genetic scissors to make their brewers yeast, but I think um, in some cases people are going to look positively on it. And you know, one of the things that we try and emphasize in this is that by doing more with less, as far as hops go, um, we can make the brewing process more sustainable. And um, I think I mentioned at the beginning of of the show. I, I come from um a biofuels lab like we're very interested we're very you know committed to sustainability we really believe in the green revolution we really think that uh technology could be used to to um uh,
3: make the make make industrial processes more sustainable um so I hope that that
1: strikes Consumers as something that that is you know an advantage that they would want to buy into, um, and I and and I'm not quite as worried about brewers to be honest because I think you know brewers are way more science oriented types like they uh, are much more knowledgeable about these types of issues. So I bet if I go out and find ten people on the street, maybe a few of them would feel some type of like hesitation towards wanting to consume uh, something that's used genetic engineering. Um, but I think that if you go find 10 brewers, you'll be hard pressed to find one that's anti for the sake of, uh, you know, fear of, of new technology or the like, I think brewers are going to be concerned about consumer response, but uh, maybe they're the best people to be educating the consumers about the benefits of, of, of this technology,
0: yeah, we want to use all the tools in the toolbox. So I think uh, I, I think you're right there, um, uh, Charles. I'm, are we going to see you guys at the uh, at the brewing summit coming up in um, in August in San Diego?
1: Heck yeah, yeah. Okay, Can't you pre- wait, are, are you pre-
0: Are you presenting this work there? Or? No,
1: um, you know it's funny. I asked them if I could present it, but they said because it's been published elsewhere that they uh, they didn't want me to. So um, is there really?
4: Uh, you can present to, to our joint meeting with Southern California in uh, February next year.
1: Yeah, you should do that. That sounds great. We're also hoping to, to have some new science to talk about at the next, the next summit. So we won't have to rely on this old stuff.
0: <laughs> that was Charles Denby and Brian Donaldson here on the Master Brewers podcast. Speaking of brewing summits, Abstract Submission is now open for the 2022 Summit in Rhode Island. Visit BrewingSummit.org or use the link in the show notes to learn more. If you've done anything cool in your brewery lately, submit an abstract. You can do a presentation or a poster, and you don't need to present research as groundbreaking as Charles Denby's. Anything that helps brewers make better beer is welcome. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.